Our reading this morning is 1 Kings 22, and we'll read verses 1 through 40. Uh, if, if, you are, um, if you're able to stand, I will uh, invite you to remain standing as we look at God's word together. If you need to sit, by all means, have a seat. Uh, as my voice is going, let's read this together, <laughs> right? That's a, that's, a, that's a good idea, but we're going to do it. We want to give uh, our, our, our careful attention to, to God's inspired word. And so we'll look at uh, 1 Kings 22, beginning at verse 1, uh, the story of the, the death of Ahab. We'll see what that means for us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people is your people, my horses is your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, I'll go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand, on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Kanaanah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? 
And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. When the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and there they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. That was quite the reading, quite the marathon right there, but you may have noticed something about our reading. It might especially stand out to you in a series that's called The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha, and that's something noticeable is who's missing in this story, Elijah and Elisha. Now next week, we'll, we'll jump into 2 Kings 1, and, and we'll see Elijah's departure when he's taken up into heaven. But I didn't want to skip this scene. Part of the reason is that we've spent so many weeks looking at King Ahab. We might as well look at his demise and see eventually how he dies. And, and maybe more than anything, I really love this chapter. <laughs> uh, I think this is a great chapter. It has everything uh, that I'm looking for, and I'm guessing that many of you are looking for when you have a story. You have your kings who are now allies. They, they scoot their thrones together, which in, in many ways is kind of comical. They're dressed in their royal regalia, and they're planning for war, and they bring in all of these prophets, and you have this dramatic prophet who wears a, horn of, uh, or a helmet of horns on his head. You have maybe sarcasm involved. There's humor in the background. That single voice of protest comes in and says, you will die a gruesome death, and Ahab dies that violent and gruesome death. This is box office material. Uh, This is Shakespearean, uh, and it could not be more relevant for you and me. Even these 40 verses that seem to say nothing about our lives, I'm telling you, I think this is as relevant as anything for us. Because this chapter is really the culmination of a theme that we've seen over and over as we've been looking at First King, Kings, and that theme is basically, will you hear, will you obey the word of God? 
I mean, in the end, that's the nutshell of Elijah's ministry. He brings God's word to the king. He brings it to the people. And and the response is never a foregone conclusion. There's always a moment of crisis. There's always a moment of decision where the people can respond, and they can believe it, or they can neglect it. They can ignore it. And that theme culminates in our passage today when Ahab, once more, for a final time, does not listen to God's word, and this time it ends with his death. I have two points for us as we explore the end of 1 Kings and the events that lead to the death of Ahab. And, and what I mean by these two points is there, there, there are two general approaches that we can take to, to the scriptures. Uh, two general approaches that we can bring to the Bible, and I'm getting these from the New Testament, you'll see that shortly. We can approach the, the word of God in one of two ways, either to have our ears tickled Or we can approach the word to have our hearts pierced. And I think we see these two approaches really powerfully in 1 Kings 22. We can come to the word in order to have our ears tickled or our hearts pierced. First approach we see in our passage is that Ahab desires to have his ears tickled. I'm getting this idea, this language from 2 Timothy 4.3 when the Apostle Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's a powerful warning, particularly for those places, those communities that have the truth, those communities that have the word of God. A time is coming for the people of God to have the word and then to no longer submit to it, but to twist it. Generation after generation has this threat. First century, Paul says it's coming. We have it now, just by the the very nature that we have the word in our midst. And so Israel, historically, is in a time where sound doctrine, surely, it's pushed to the side because they want to hear what they want to hear, and that's where Ahab is, right? And so when we pick up in 1 Kings 22, we see that, that since the Lord gave Ahab victory over Syria, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, if you remember King Ben-Hadad, that Ahab lets off the hook and they, and they have this covenant of peace. Well, things haven't been quite rosy over the past three years. An issue has come up, namely that there is important land that once belonged to Israel, they have not received back from Syria in this treaty of peace. It's a key region, Ramoth Gilead. It functioned like a toll booth on a prominent trade route in the ancient world. Ahab wants it back, and he enters into an alliance with the southern king of Judah. And for the first time, we're introduced to Judah's king, Jehoshaphat. So he comes to to Samaria in Israel makes a covenant with Ahab. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses, right? Mikasa is Sukasa. We're in this together. But before they go to war against Syria, Jehoshaphat comes in with something that sounds very strange in the story of Ahab. I don't know if you picked up on this because it sounds so foreign to absolutely everything that we've been reading. He wants to seek the Lord first. I mean, at this point, this sounds shocking to us. Wait a second, a king can actually want to seek the Lord's will before he does something? I love what one commentator compares this scene to. He says, Jehoshaphat, he's like the Christian guy that goes to the non-Christian's dinner table and he says, will you say grace? Right? I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced the awkwardness of that. That's what's happening here, right? Jehoshaphat says, let's, let's pray to the Lord. And Ahab goes, awkward, I, I guess we can do that. See, Jehoshaphat is a godly king. He's just naive. He makes a lot of strange decisions. I think that's being nice. He makes some kind of dumb decisions. Think about this. He enters into an alliance with Ahab and Israel, and then he wants to seek the Lord's will. 
Jehoshaphat is a godly king. He's just naive. So Ahab agrees. He says, fine. Let's call 400 of the prophets into the presence of, of the kings here. And then he inquires of the prophets, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or not? And they say in verse 7, oh, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat smells something fishy, and he says, well, wait a second. Is there another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? Now, our English translations do a pretty good job here. If you're looking at the text before you, you notice, even right here, sometimes Lord is spelled with an uppercase L and then lowercase O-R-D. That translates the Hebrew word Adonai, which means boss, master, right? Like Lord and lady, that kind of idea, right? And then other times, it, it, it says Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and that's communicating the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. This is how God gives himself to his people. And so clearly what's happening is Jehoshaphat is hearing these prayers, and he's saying, wait a second, is anyone inquiring of the Lord God? Jehoshaphat isn't confident that the true God is being called upon. He wants to hear from Yahweh. And Ahab says, well, there's one guy by whom we may inquire. That's Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat responds, let not the king so. Come on, you're exaggerating. Now let's pause at this point because already I think we see some dangers. Already we can see this idea of going to the word, looking to get what we want to get, this, this idea of our ears being tickled. So the first danger is that we go to God's word looking for it to affirm our desires. Now hear me very carefully. I think most of the desires that we have as human beings are, are good desires. Like what, what gets us ticking? Think about our desire for approval and acceptance, for security, for, for comfort, for pleasure. You could say all of those are pretty good desires. And in fact, the gospel meets those desires. The gospel fulfills those desires. They're met in God. That's why those desires are good. Now, on the other hand, we have twisted desires. We have bad desires. Or maybe most of the time, it's a bad pursuit of those good desires, which is our problem. And so the first danger that we see here with Ahab is that how, how I feel, right, is always good and true, and God has nothing to say to my feelings other than affirmation. But may that never be. Ahab is less concerned with pursuing what is true and more concerned with how the message makes him feel. He's less concerned with pursuing what is true and he's more concerned about how he feels. There's nothing new under the sun. This isn't a modern phenomenon. The Apostle Paul would say that Ahab has itching ears and he wants to accumulate teachers to suit his own passions. He wants yes men. He wants those who will affirm what he supports and he wants those who will denounce in judgment those things that he wants to denounce in judgment. He wants to hear what he wants to hear. Now we're not kings with prophets on demand, but don't we have the same temptation? Do we ever go to the word to find an echo of our deepest desires, even if they're maybe not revealed in God's will, right? A voice that affirms what we love and condemns what we hate. See, this isn't a word for, for those who are just out in, in the world. I think that's the, that's the first mistake we can make is to think this is for those outside. No, this is for the church. It's for those who have the word. 
So there are a number of ways we can see this. I think it's true on a big picture level. Um, we can see that it, it's a church that compromises on issues of human sexuality, more conformed to the spirit of this age than to the word. For sure, I think that's true. Maybe it's for churches unwilling to address seriously greed and money and how we use our money and how we think about riches. It's the perpetual comfort in the church of of those who claim Christ and yet from our lips come reviling words and, and, and slander and gossip. When it comes to the pursuit of personal pleasure and gratification, do we look any different from our non-Christian neighbors? My only point is to say the spirit of, of Ahab is alive in me. I think the spirit of Ahab is alive in us. In Romans 12, 2, Paul gives this great definition of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, shaped by the word, to, to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that question is, what is shaping my mind? What am I being conformed to? Because you are being conformed to something. To be a human being is to be malleable. We are spiritual Plato. And we are either being conformed to the word or to the world. That's the first danger on display in our passage. There's a second danger. It's not just an affirming word that we seek out. It's that there's a word that speaks falsehood in the language of truth. Lies cloaked in pious language. And so Micaiah, this thorn in the side prophet, he's being summoned. But in the meantime, this guy Zedekiah comes forward. And this is the guy with the flair for the the drama, right? He makes his entrance. He's got this hat of iron horns. And notice what he says. He says, thus says the Lord. But look how how it's spelled there. Look Look how it's put there. Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. With these horns you will push, better, you will gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So Zedekiah claims to speak in the name of Yahweh. And more than that, he is most likely quoting a prophecy that Moses gave to the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, in Deuteronomy 13, when he says, you're like a wild ox with big horns who will gore your enemies. And so if we take a step back, that's a sobering picture, isn't it? You have a prophet who claims to speak for the living God, and he quotes the word of God for his own end. He uses all of the right vocabulary. He has all of the zeal. When Micaiah prophesies doom, he slaps Micaiah in the face, which is this kind of ancient way of saying you're lying. When Jesus is testifying before the religious leaders, remember, someone slaps Jesus to accuse him of the same thing. Zedekiah asks, how could the spirit of prophecy leave me and then go to Micaiah who prophesies something completely different? And all of this, I think, is to make the case that Zedekiah believes everything he's saying. I don't think he's a charlatan. He believes everything that he's saying, but the word is not with him. So to have our minds renewed in the word is to develop the muscle of discernment and to hear when the word is being misused even when untruths are cloaked in the language of Scripture. I think we can see this misuse of the word all around us in areas of self-help, in the prosperity gospel, of any Christian facade, right? Anything that looks remotely Christian but has no room for the foolishness and weakness of Christ and him crucified. In civil religion, politicians on the left and right who, who enter into the pulpits to preach, Vladimir Putin addressing his people using theological vocabulary. 
In the 2000s, sociologist of religion, Christian Smith, coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. He said the majority of Americans, uh, including many self-professing Christians, are really just moralistic therapeutic deists. And what he meant by this was you believe there's a God who exists and who created all things, that this God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, that the central goal of life is kind of personal happiness and fulfillment, that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life unless you really need him to be, and then good people go to heaven when they die. And I wonder how much of this Ahab would have a problem with. Ahab desires a word that will tickle his ears. How often do we want that too? Let's move to our second point, because God is not in the business of tickling ears. His word instead is intended to pierce hearts. Micaiah is summoned and says, what do you want? And the king says, we're looking for the Lord to direct us. Should we go to battle or stay home? And Micaiah says, oh, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So Micaiah at first says everything that the previous prophets have, have said. And I wish we had a tone of voice, don't you? Was he over the top? Was he like, oh, for sure. No, you totally go. The Lord is going to give that into your hand. But we know Ahab isn't fooled because he says, oh, how many times do I have to make you swear to tell me the truth? In other words, this isn't the first time it's happened, huh? How many times have I have to have this guy swear that he's actually telling me the truth? And then in verse 17, Micaiah tells it straight. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Jesus says the same exact thing when he looks at the people with compassion in his own ministry and he calls them sheep without a shepherd. These people have no leadership. They have no good king to lead them. And Micaiah continues, and then Yahweh said, they have no master, so let just each return to his home. It's the blind leading the blind. And then you have this little mini confrontation of one prophet, verse 400, just like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now you have Micaiah and the 400 other prophets. And he says in verse 19, therefore, hear, hear the word of the Lord if you want the truth. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and his left. This is beautiful because remember where Micaiah is standing. He's in this pop-up council, these two thrones scooted together, all the kings and their advisors and all of these prophets. And Micaiah says, let me tell you about the royal council I just came from. It also had a throne, but sitting on that throne was the Lord God Almighty and surrounding that throne were the hosts of heaven. And the Lord says, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? The spirit comes forward and says, I will go. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And Micaiah summarizes all of this. Behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. The punishment for Ahab's crime, or the punishment fits Ahab's crime. Ahab has refused to listen to the word of the Lord, and so he has given the lies that his heart longs to hear. There's been a lot of ink spilt on this passage. If God does not lie, if there is no deception in God, and I think that's true, then, then how in the world can he be behind this lying spirit that comes to Ahab? Because he is, isn't he? That's what it says. God isn't just permitting this lying spirit. He's not just allowing it to happen. He's ordering this to happen. God has decreed that Ahab would hear words that tickle his ears. How could God deceive? How could God be behind the lies? But I would argue he's not lying here. 
There is no deception in this scene. Did you notice that? The Lord sends a spirit to these prophets to mislead and lure Ahab to his death. But then what happens? He sends Micaiah to say, that's exactly what just happened. Micaiah comes to Ahab and says, you are being lured to your death. Micaiah says to Ahab, those prophets have a lying spirit. Ahab, you are being lured to your death. And Ahab says, seize him and throw him in jail. Put him in jail, barely feed him until I come back. And Micaiah says, if you come back, the Lord has not spoken by me. Ahab concocts a bizarre plan where Jehoshaphat dresses up like a king. By the way, find a friend like that, right? If you're Jehoshaphat, you're insane. Why are you still going to battle? So find a friend like Jehoshaphat. Ahab decides he's going to dress up like a common soldier. And then what happens? A random Syrian archer launches an arrow and it hits Ahab right where his armor is not covering him. And he dies. Same thing that we've seen throughout the story of Ahab. He's been confronted with the word of God, and he has refused to listen. God has mapped out everything that he's doing. Here are the prophets that are not telling the truth, right? It's a lying spirit. They're deceptive. Ahab, what they're saying is not true. And he refuses to listen. He follows his own heart instead. Ahab follows his heart instead of God's word. This is an important lesson because Ahab is acknowledging, I think, that it is too costly to follow God's word. It would mean there is something greater than him. There's someone greater than his wants and desires. There's something greater than his own lust for power and control. God's word doesn't exist to tickle our ears. It exists to pierce our hearts. Micaiah stands before Ahab and says, Ahab, you will die if you go into battle. In other words, repent. Repent. How will we respond to God's word that comes to us and it says, flee from your sin. Flee from your self-righteousness. Put your trust in Christ and his work. How will we respond to a word that says you bring nothing to the table but your sin and your inability and your need? A word that says the only thing that you can carry is your cross, which represents death to yourself and to the world. Because that's the call for all of us. Are we listening? Are we hearing that word that pierces our hearts? In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, I think it speaks directly to this where it says, Today, if you hear God's voice, listen, don't harden. Don't harden your hearts because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you cut that out of context, I think that may be the most frightening verse in all of the Bible. Who are you but someone that is exposed before God's face, naked and helpless? And the most terrifying verse out of context, when it slides into context, says, Since then we have a faithful high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Because you are exposed by this word, would you look to the one who has passed through the heavenly places, who with confidence brings you to God's throne, which you only know in Christ is a throne of grace. Ahab heard a word of judgment that should have brought him to his knees, crying out for God's mercy. And I hope that you believe with all your hearts after reading through 1 Kings that there is no doubt that Ahab would have received mercy. I don't have a single doubt 
that Ahab would have received mercy. But Ahab refuses to listen to God's word. May it never be for us. Now, would we be a people who are conformed, who are shaped by the word of God, who live under its demands so that in Christ we might rest in the deliverance that it proclaims? I want to close looking at the end of Ahab. Verse 39. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Do you know what that sentence means? He was a great king. He was a great king. He expanded Israel's borders. Uh, He didn't have a palace that was actually made of ivory. What that means is that it was filled with, like, valuable trinkets. All of the most valuable stuff of the ancient world, he had a good collection of it in his palace. He brought prosperity to his nation. That's what that sentence means. And all the while, he led them away from God. He was conformed to a world that is passing away. All of that glory that he devoted his life to, it didn't mean a thing. Friends, you and I will never achieve the worldly glory of Ahab in 100,000 years. In it, how we give our hearts just as much to that which passes away. So do you see the pressing relevance of an ancient story of kings and prophets? Because it helps us to see our need for a word to speak into our lives, a word that we sit under, a word that doesn't wink at our sins, but it condemns our sins so that we might flee to our God who in Christ delights to lavish us in mercy. The last thing we need is a word that tickles our ears precisely because we are both sinners and sufferers, all of us. We need a word that pierces our hearts, that empties us of pride and self-righteousness, that empties us of our pursuits of our own glory. We need a word that brings us to the cross in order to bring us to the new life that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that one of the reasons that we come into this place week after week is that you alone have the words of life words that slay us in our sins as we're confronted by your law and yet in your gospel, it raises us to new life. Lord, would we be a people who are known for our heart and our desire to sit under your word, to not manipulate it, to not use it to affirm our deepest desires as if you are the God that that wants to keep us in the the prison and misery of of us being us. What what do we touch that that, that doesn't turn to hurt, that isn't shadowed in some way by our weakness, by our sin, by our selfishness? And so, Lord, would you pierce our hearts by your word? Would you pierce our hearts in order to bring us to see Jesus, our great and faithful high priest? the one who has passed through the heavenly places and taken his seat at your right hand so that we might not only approach your throne of grace, but with confidence, with boldness, clinging to his coattails, come to you. Lord, by your word and spirit, 
would you create these realities in our hearts here this morning? Lord, we thank you for the bold promises that you've attached to your word. We, we need it at work. We need you to be at work. And we're grateful that you promised to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.